thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, let's all turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> when I was teaching the uh, uh, college and career class this morning, I was telling them uh, eight years ago, uh, do, does anyone know what's happening right now in the world? Or the World Cup? <laughs> the World Cup was happening in 2010. And uh, I wasn't that much interested in coming to church. In fact, uh, I was, I was, uh, I, I was kind of uh, mad at my parents for having brought me to church because uh, <laughs> I was wanting to watch the World Cup. But uh, God has done a, a great thing in my life. And uh, I wanted to talk about that a little bit on uh, Matthew chapter 3 in verse number 13, and it goes all the way to verse 17. It's uh, probably one of my favorite passages, and I wouldn't have said that if it was eight years ago, <laughs> but this is one of my favorite passages because of what it's pointing out in scripture. There is actually a lot of doctrines in this, uh, in just in this small little passage here. And um, <clears throat> I'll read here from verse 13 to 17. So this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. Then cometh Jesus from, the, uh, from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Before I keep going, if, I, if we could open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, you've given us your word, and we thank you that uh, we can place our faith in every single word that you've placed in it. We thank you, Lord, for even this time, this moment, for the strength that you've given me. And I pray, Father, that it would not be my own words, but it would be yours that would speak to somebody's heart. Please help somebody make a decision today and uh, that uh, the, this, uh, this word would not go um, un untouched. Lord, I pray that uh, you would have your blessing on this uh, this message and uh, everything that will be said and done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Perhaps uh, you didn't notice it, but I will just point out a few uh, doctrines that were already mentioned throughout this small passage. It talks about baptism being by immersion. It talks about the authority of the administrator must be given by God. There's a doctrine that it talks about baptism to be an event of identification. It also talks about the deity of Christ. This passage also talks about the Trinity. It also talks about baptism being an act of obedience. Now, maybe you didn't catch all those, but I'll just go through a few of them. Perhaps you've probably wondered this one doctrine that really sets us apart. What is it that in this movement that we grab our namesake from? Why is it that one ordinance is so important to us that even to whom we attribute our 
in a certain sense, our ancestry. Uh, we talk about the Montanists and the Novatians who, from back in history, that we can trace our, uh, our movement to, to whom the, our, our beliefs kind of came from. We can, we can go back in history and see that Christianity was still held to. Why is it that we put our namesake towards this one doctrine called baptism? Why do Baptists believe in baptism? So <clears throat> perhaps you've probably wondered, and maybe you've looked through history itself, and you've seen uh, and probably even read Martin Luther and guys like John Calvin, they used to uh, punish the people who used to believe in the biblical way of what baptism is. There were people who would die for this doctrine. Why? Why is it so significant? In fact, sometimes they made it a punishment for those who believed that somebody who had gotten saved to get baptized in, by full immersion, they, may, they used to make it a punishment that it should be drowning. The irony is that they would make them go underneath the water saying that you wanted to go underneath the water, why don't you just stay there? Then they would hang weights onto Dutch Baptists and throw them into the river just so they can prove their point that probably shouldn't believe in this doctrine. But Dutch Baptists believe in it, believed in it, and today we still practice it. Why? Why is baptism so important as an ordinance? And have you ever thought about the cost and the hassle of what we have to go through for baptism? Why is it that we fill up these, this tank with hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water just for a five minute moment or a 10 minute moment? Why is it that we put so many man hours to try and fill it up? Why is it so important? So maybe let's take a look. Surely God had his reasons and surely the Baptists of yesteryear had their reasons too. And let's take a look at maybe some of the things that is pointed out in this passage today. So if you turn quickly to just stay in John chapter, uh, sorry, not John, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. We're often told that to never compare ourselves to other Christians, but to t always compare ourselves to Christ. Because we're not followers of Christians. We're followers of Christ. We're followers of Jesus Christ. And we're his witnesses, not witnesses of Christians. So Jesus, in this moment, is the candidate. He's the baptism, baptismal candidate. And in case you haven't noticed, where he came from was from Galilee. Oh, sorry. Go to uh, chapter 3 and verse 13. I said 16. I meant 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. If you know a little bit about Bible geography, Galilee found itself all the way at, up north. So it meant that Jesus had to have traveled about 50 kilometers to get to Jordan. All that for a baptism? Does that make sense to you? Well, Jesus did. And in fact, it showed a humbling experience, perhaps, uh, I'm just reading between the lines a little here, but I could imagine that Jesus had to submit to the authority of John the Baptist. 
Because at that moment, to travel 50 kilometers all the way to just get baptized is a lot of work. And it's going to take a lot out of you. So perhaps this should be the first thing to consider. There's a lot of humility that comes when there's baptism. There's a submission that has to take place. We who are Christians, shouldn't that be one of our most representative traits? Humility? Think about it. How are you doing in it today? Do you find yourself thinking thoughts where comparing yourself with other Christians is the norm in life? Is how somebody is doing the norm to how you try to live your life as a Christian? Or is it Jesus Christ? Is what somebody else doing, how you measure yourself, or is it Jesus Christ, the way you measure yourself in your Christian life? My, <clears throat> my recommendation is to quit comparing yourself with Christians and start comparing yourself with Jesus Christ because there's no point you try to compare yourself to a human being. Now, in this case, Christ was showing humility in the fact that he was submitting himself to a human being. John the Baptist. God had given John the Baptist the authority to baptize Jesus Christ. I'm going to touch on that a little later, but here's what he said to John the Baptist. I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Sorry, that was John the Baptist saying. John the Baptist was saying that because he was talking to God, and he's saying, wait, you want me to baptize you? But... I should be the one asking you to baptize me. Doesn't that make more sense? But Christ still submitted himself under John the Baptist. Think about this. At Christ's death, he did not show pride. In fact, he humiliated himself before he was crucified. Even in the Christian life, even in baptism, that submission, even in salvation, there is submission. You cannot get saved with pride, and you cannot get baptized with pride. So the sinner who comes to God seeking repentance must humble himself, and so does the candidate. Is someone who has recognized that they stand before a holy and righteous God, and in comparison to that holy and righteous God, they stand unrighteous. And another thing we believe in is immersion. Immersion is the biblical way that we believe that baptism has to happen. Let's take a look at it here. In verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. I'll stop there for a moment. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. If he comes up straightway, therefore... There had to be, he had to be underneath something. Does that make sense? <laughs> Here's another thought. When you bury someone, you don't throw dirt and then expect to cover him or her or whoever the corpse is. You don't expect to throw dirt and cover someone. In order to do a proper burial, you have to cover them up completely. Nothing exposed. That is the proper biblical way. Baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
If you could turn quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3 to 4. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then, if you could turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Paul is making a comparison here. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. See, what baptism is actually doing is it's actually showing, it's a public declaration of what has actually happened inside. I'm going to talk about it in a little bit, but what we're doing is we're identifying with what Christ did on the cross when he died for our sins. We are putting ourselves there where Christ put himself. We are dying. Our sins are put with him. And then we are showing what has happened in our heart. We're publicly declaring that our sins have died with Christ and that now we are coming back to life just as Christ was resurrected. If you know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, just what had happened in Acts chapter 8 in verse 38 and 39, the Ethiopian eunuch, first he had to humble himself. And then what he ended up saying was that he didn't understand what he was reading. He had to humble himself and ask Philip, what does this mean? Philip showed him what it meant. And then finally, that's when he gets saved And then he asks Philip, when can I get baptized? Let's, if you want, you could take a look at it in Acts chapter 8. It's actually a longer passage, so I encourage you to turn there. Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Again, immersion. Instead of just the candidate going, though, we have Philip and the candidate going down completely, and then both of them coming straight up. Almost, well, not almost, it is complete covering and then (laughs) complete uncovering in the end. They both went down into the water and came up out of the water. Baptism is literally dunking of the candidate. Water needs to be completely overhead and then nothing exposed. We don't consider the dirt if we sprinkle it. If we're sprinkling something, it's not considered baptism. If we're pouring something over somebody's head, it's not considered baptism. It's not covering them. If a part of the dead body is exposed, it's not a proper burial. Because remember, baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also, another thing we see is who is administering it. So turn quickly back to Matthew. Matthew 
It's more of a study today. In, in Matthew, another thing we notice is who's administering it. As I had said, John the Baptist was the one that God had given authority to. So, just like at salvation, it was God the Father who raised up Jesus Christ after he was in the grave. The authority was laid on him. Uh, <clears throat> the authority is the one that laid him underneath into the grave and then raised him up. In the case of John the Baptist, he was the authority. So he was the one who got to put Jesus underneath the water, and he was the one who was able to bring him out of the water. The same case was with Abraham as well. When Abraham had to take Isaac to the altar, he was the one who put Isaac on the altar, and he was the one who brought Isaac back out. He was the one who was given authority. In the, in the case of Matthew chapter 3, in verse 14, but John, sorry, verse 13, then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. See, God had given authority to John the Baptist to baptize Jesus Christ to fulfill all righteousness. And I'm about to talk about that now in the identification. When we get baptized, one of the things that happens is it identifies us with a lot of things. Let's take a look here in verse number 16. We just stopped at 15, so let's look at 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And verse 17, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There are three identifications happening here with Jesus Christ, if you noticed it. The Holy Spirit identified with Christ when it descended as a dove. The Father identified with Christ when he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Christ identified with us. He was foretelling what was about to happen soon. He was foretelling his death, burial, and resurrection when he was getting baptized here. Now, one of the biggest reasons why this passage I love so much is for a lot of apologetic reasons. When I say apologetic reasons, it's to defend the faith, right? A lot of people, especially when it comes to Catholicism or people who believe in baptismal regeneration, they'll, they'll always say, oh, you have to get baptized to get saved. Well, I come here quickly and say, so why did Jesus have to get baptized? It's a, it's a good question, right? Usually it stumps them, but uh, here. <laughs> Jesus also identified with the teaching of John the Baptist. Christ is sinless. So why would he need to get baptized? John the Baptist was baptizing people unto repentance. But what did Jesus have to repent of? You see, Jesus didn't have any sin to repent of. But what Jesus was doing was he was identifying with our sin. You know, those sins that 
we have the secret sins, the sins that everyone knows of as well, all those sins, he was identifying with them. He was becoming sin for us. If you could turn quickly to 2 Corinthians 521. 2 Corinthians 521. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus Christ sin for us. He who knew no sin. Before a holy and righteous God, we did never, we did never um, deserve heaven. But Jesus Christ decided he's going to come and take our place, our sin, and he was going to die for us instead so that we don't have to go through that. What was happening here is that Jesus was identifying with that sin. And just like in uh, Isaiah 53, just like the old prophets uh, would say it, Isaiah 53 and verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So, Christ identified with our sin as well. Maybe we could stop here and then see all, we already have enough evidence of, for why so many Christians have died for this one ordinance. But there's a little more. We identify, when we get baptized, what is also happening is that we are identifying with the local church's teaching or the doctrine in order to become a member of a local church, this has always been the requirement. In Acts 2, you can turn there, Acts 2, 41 and 42. The first converts in the first church were added to the church after they had gotten baptized. <clears throat> Acts 2, 41 and 42. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So they gladly received his word. That's salvation. They were baptized. That means they were identifying with the doctrine that the church was preaching. And then... They were added to the church. That's membership. When we get baptized, we may not realize how significant it actually is. In baptism, we identify with Christ, we identify with the teaching of baptism, and then we identify with the local church. And then finally, baptism, simply put, we do it out of obedience. You see, baptism has never been a means for salvation. Baptism has never been called a sacrament. Baptism has never been able to save people. Baptism has always been an ordinance given by Jesus Christ to fellow believers. 
What is an ordinance? Something that is essentially an order or a command given by the master or by God to obey until Jesus takes us home. Yeah, I may, if I may remind you in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you're going to do baptism as the works that you're going to put your faith in, it's not going to save you. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. That's Romans 3.28. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's Titus 3.5 and 6. Baptism is a work, but God demands that salvation be done by faith. The Christian life is a life of works, to be done by faith. Baptism comes after because it is a work of faith. Not that you should have faith in your baptism, but because you have faith, you get baptized. And faith is shown when you obey what God has said in his word. Perhaps you know the song, Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. You have an obligation to get baptized, and it is not required for your salvation, but it is required for your obedience. It's something that God commands you to do after you get saved. Christ in Matthew 3 was setting the example for every believer. If Christ chose to obey, then what does that say of us? Ought we not to obey? Christ said in John 14, 15, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Christ also said in John 15, 14, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. A preacher once said this about the people who claimed to be Christians, but who didn't want to get baptized. The wish to live unrecognized as a Christian, unwilling to share the responsibilities or discharge the duties of discipleship, those are big words, and yet, hoping for its blessings and rewards is both selfish and mercenary and indicates that the new birth has not yet transpired. God expects it of you. Obedience is expected of you. So, from all this, if you are a Christian today and you're looking for reasons to get baptized, reasons to serve, just know that these are some of the things that's actually happening. These are some of the traits or characteristics that are actually taking place. You are submitting to God. You are publicly declaring your salvation. You are identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. You are identifying with the church's teaching. And ultimately, you're obeying God. But all of this is done by faith. We know that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's Hebrews 11.6. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch, what he asked, what doth hinder me to be baptized? So what doth hinder you to get baptized? Or what doth hinder you to serve? When Paul was saved, he asked, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? 
A healthy Christian will always be looking for what God will have him do. What is God asking for you to do?